Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, the second narrative, and this one is from Mr. Bruff. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, which is his full narrative. And now things are starting to get interesting. Chapter 1. My fair friend, Miss Clack, having laid down the pen, there are two reasons for my taking it up next, in my turn. In the first place... I am in a position to throw the necessary light on certain points of interest which have thus far been left in the dark. Miss Verinder had her own private reason for breaking her marriage engagement, and I was at the bottom of it. Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite had his own private reason for withdrawing all claim to the hand of his charming cousin, and I discovered what it was. In the second place, it was my good or ill fortune, I hardly know which, to find myself personally involved— at the period of which I am now writing, in the mystery of the Indian diamond. I had the honor of an interview at my own office with an oriental stranger of distinguished manners, who was no other, unquestionably, than the chief of the three Indians. Add to this that I met with the celebrated traveler, Mr. Murthwaite, the day afterwards, and that I held a conversation with him on the subject of the moonstone, which has a very important bearing on later events. And there you have the statement of my claims to fill the position which I occupy in these pages. The true story of the broken marriage engagement comes first in point of time, and must therefore take first place in the present narrative. Tracing my way back along the chain of events, from one end to the other, I find it necessary to open the scene, oddly enough, as you will think, at the bedside of my excellent client and friend, the late Sir John Verinder. Sir John had his share— perhaps rather a large share, of the more harmless and amiable of the weaknesses incidental to humanity. Among these, I may mention as applicable to the matter in hand, an invincible reluctance, so long as he enjoyed his usual good health, to face the responsibility of making his will. Lady Verinder exerted her influence to rouse him to a sense of duty in this matter, and I exerted my influence. He admitted the justice of our views, but he went no further than that, until he found himself afflicted with the illness which ultimately brought him to his grave. Then I was sent for at last to take my client's instructions on the subject of his will. They proved to be the simplest instructions I had ever received in the whole of my professional career. Sir John was dozing when I entered the room, 
"'He roused himself at the sight of me. "'How do you do, Mr. Bruff?' he said. "'I shan't be very long about this, "'and then I'll go to sleep again.' "'He looked on with great interest "'while I collected pens, ink, and paper. "'Are you ready?' he asked. "'I bowed and took a dip of ink "'and waited for my instructions. "'I leave everything to my wife,' said Sir John. "'That's all.' "'He turned round on his pillow "'and composed himself to sleep again.' "'I was obliged to disturb him. "'Am I to understand,' I asked, "'that you leave the whole of the property, "'of every sort and description, "'of which you die, possessed absolutely, "'to Lady Verinder?' "'Yes,' said Sir John. "'Only I put it shorter. "'Why can't you put it shorter "'and let me go to sleep again? "'Everything to my wife, that's my will.' "'His property was entirely at his own disposal.' and was of two kinds. Property in land, I purposely abstained from using technical language, and property in money. In the majority of cases, I am afraid I should have felt it my duty to my client to ask him to reconsider his will. In the case of Sir John, I knew Lady Verinder to be, not only worthy of the unreserved trust which her husband had placed in her, all good wives are worthy of that, but to be also capable of properly administering a trust which, in my experience of the fair sex, not one in a thousand of them is competent to do. In ten minutes, Sir John's will was drawn, and executed, and Sir John himself, good man, was finishing his interrupted nap. Lady Verinder amply justified the confidence which her husband had placed in her. In the first days of her widowhood, she sent for me and made her will. The view she took of her position was so thoroughly sound and sensible "'that I was relieved of all necessity for advising her. "'My responsibility began and ended "'with shaping her instructions into the proper legal form. "'Before Sir John had been a fortnight in his grave, "'the future of his daughter had been most wisely "'and most affectionately provided for. "'The will remained in its fireproof box at my office, "'through more years than I like to reckon up. "'It was not till the summer of 1848 that I found occasion to look at it again under very melancholy circumstances. At the date I have mentioned, the doctors pronounced the sentence on poor Lady Verinder, which was literally a sentence of death. I was the first person whom she informed of her situation, and I found her anxious to go over her will again with me. It was impossible to improve the provisions relating to her daughter, but in the lapse of time her wishes in regard to certain minor legacies left to different relatives had undergone some modification, and it became necessary to add three or four codicils to the original document. Having done this at once, for fear of accident, I obtained her ladyship's permission to embody her recent instructions in a second will. My object was to avoid certain inevitable confusions and repetitions which now disfigured the original document, and which, to own the truth, grated sadly on my professional sense of the fitness of things." The execution of this second will has been described by Miss Clack, who was so obliging as to witness it. So far as regarded Rachel Verinder's pecuniary interests, it was, word for word, the exact counterpart of the first will. The only changes introduced related to the appointment of a guardian, and to certain provisions concerning that appointment, which were made under my advice. On Lady Verinder's death, the will was placed in the hands of my proctor to be proved, as the phrase is, in the usual way. In about three weeks from that time, as well as I can remember, the first warning reached me of something unusual going on under the surface. 
I happened to be looking in at my friend the proctor's office, and I observed that he received me with an appearance of greater interest than usual. "'I have some news for you,' he said. "'What do you think I heard at Doctor's Commons this morning? "'Lady Verinder's will has been asked for and examined already.' "'This was news indeed. "'There was absolutely nothing which could be contested in the will, "'and there was nobody I could think of "'who had the slightest interest in examining it. "'I shall perhaps do well if I explain in this place, "'for the benefit of the few people who don't know it already.' that the law allows all wills to be examined at Doctors' Commons by anybody who applies on the payment of a shilling fee. "'Did you hear who asked for the will?' I asked. "'Yes. The clerk had no hesitation in telling me.' "'Mr. Smalley, of the firm of Skip and Smalley, asked for it. The will has not been copied yet into the great folio registers, so there was no alternative but to depart from the usual course and to let him see the original document.' He looked it over carefully and made a note in his pocketbook. Have you any idea of what he wanted with it? I shook my head. I shall find out, I answered, before I am a day older. With that I went back at once to my own office. If any other firm of solicitors had been concerned in this unaccountable examination of my deceased client's will, I might have found some difficulty in making the necessary discovery. "'but I had a hold over Skip and Smalley, "'which made my course in this matter a comparatively easy one. "'My common-law clerk, a most competent and excellent man, "'was a brother of Mr. Smalley's, "'and, owing to this sort of indirect connection with me, "'Skip and Smalley had, for some years past, "'picked up the crumbs that fell from my table "'in the shape of cases brought to my office, "'which, for various reasons, "'I did not think it worth while to undertake.' My professional patronage was, in this way, of some importance to the firm. I intended, if necessary, to remind them of that patronage. The moment I got back I spoke to my clerk, and, after telling him what had happened, I sent him to his brother's office, with Mr. Bruff's compliments, and he would be glad to know why Masters Skip and Smalley had found it necessary to examine Lady Verinder's will. This message brought Mr. Smalley back to my office in company with his brother, "'He acknowledged that he had acted under instructions received from a client. "'And then he put it to me, "'whether it would not be a breach of professional confidence on his part to say more. "'We had a smart discussion upon that. "'He was right, no doubt, and I was wrong. "'The truth is, I was angry and suspicious, "'and I insisted on knowing more. "'Worse still, I declined to consider any additional information offered me, "'as a secret placed in my keeping.' I claimed perfect freedom to use my own discretion. Worse even than that, I took an unwarrantable advantage of my position. "'Choose, sir,' I said to Mr. Smalley, "'between the risk of losing your client's business and the risk of losing mine. Quite indefensible, I admit, an act of tyranny and nothing less. Like other tyrants, I carried my point. Mr. Smalley chose his alternative without a moment's hesitation.' He smiled resignedly and gave up the name of his client, Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite. That was enough for me. I wanted to know no more. Having reached this point in my narrative, it now becomes necessary to place the reader of these lines, so far as Lady Verinder's will is concerned, on a footing of perfect equality in respect of information with myself. Let me state then, in the fewest possible words, 
that Rachel Verinder had nothing but a life interest in the property. Her mother's excellent sense and my long experience had combined to relieve her of all responsibility and to guard her from all danger of becoming a victim in the future of some needy and unscrupulous man. Neither she nor her husband, if she ever married, could raise sixpence either on the property in land or on the property in money. They would have the houses in London and in Yorkshire to live in, and they would have the handsome income, and that was all. When I came to think over what I had discovered, I was sorely perplexed what to do next. Hardly a week had passed since I had heard, to my surprise and distress, of Miss Verinder's proposed marriage. I had the sincerest admiration and affection for her, and I had been inexpressibly grieved when I heard that she was about to throw herself away on Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite. And now here he was, whom I had always believed to be a smooth-tongued impostor, justifying the very worst that I had thought of him, and plainly revealing the mercenary object of the marriage, on his side. And what of that, you may reply? The thing is done every day. Granted, my dear sir, but would you think of it quite as lightly as you do, if the thing was done, let us say, with your own sister? The first consideration which now naturally occurred to me was this. Would Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite hold to his engagement after what his lawyer had discovered for him? It depended entirely on his pecuniary position, of which I knew nothing. If that position was not a desperate one, it may be well worth his while to marry Miss Berinder for income alone. If, on the other hand, he stood in urgent need of realizing a large sum by a given time, then Lady Berinder's will would exactly meet the case, and would preserve her daughter from falling into a scoundrel's hands. In the latter event, there would be no need for me to distress Miss Rachel, in the first days of her mourning for her mother, by an immediate revelation of the truth. In the former event, if I remained silent, I should be conniving at a marriage which would make her miserable for life. My doubts ended in my calling at the hotel in London, at which I knew Mrs. Abelwhite and Miss Verinder to be staying. They informed me that they were going to Brighton the next day, and that an unexpected obstacle prevented Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite from accompanying them. I at once proposed to take his place. While I was only thinking of Rachel Verinder, it was possible to hesitate. When I actually saw her, my mind was made up directly, come what might of it, to tell her the truth. I found my opportunity when I was out walking with her on the day after my arrival. "'May I speak to you?' I asked, "'about your marriage engagement.' "'Yes,' she said, indifferently, "'if you have nothing more interesting to talk about. "'Will you forgive an old friend and servant of your family, Miss Rachel, "'if I venture on asking whether your heart is set on this marriage?' "'I am marrying in despair, Mr. Bruff, "'on the chance of dropping into some sort of stagnant happiness "'which may reconcile me to my life.' "'Strong language, and suggestive of something below the surface, "'in the shape of a romance.' "'but I had my own object in view, "'and I declined, as we lawyers say, "'to pursue the question into its side issues. "'Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite can hardly be of your way of thinking,' "'I said. "'His heart must be set on the marriage at any rate?' "'He says so, and I suppose I ought to believe him,' she said. "'He would hardly marry me, after what I've owed to him, "'unless he was fond of me.' "'Poor thing!' The bare idea of a man marrying her for his own selfish and mercenary ends had never entered her head. The task I had set myself began to look like a harder task than I had bargained for. 
"'It sounds strangely,' I went on, "'in my old-fashioned ears.' "'What sounds strangely?' she asked. "'To hear you speak of your future husband "'as if you were not quite sure of the sincerity of his attachment. "'Are you conscious of any reason in your own mind for doubting him?' "'Her astonishing quickness of perception "'detected a change in my voice, or my manner, "'when I put that question, "'which warned her that I had been speaking all along "'with some ulterior object in view.' She stopped, and taking her arm out of mine, looked me searchingly in the face. "'Mr. Bruff,' she said, "'you have something to tell me about Godfrey Abelwhite. Tell it.' I knew her well enough to take her at her word. I told it. She put her arm again into mine, and walked on with me slowly. I felt her hand tightening its grasp mechanically on my arm, and I saw her getting paler and paler as I went on. But— "'Not a word passed her lips while I was speaking. "'When I had done, she still kept silent. "'Her head drooped a little, "'and she walked by my side, unconscious of my presence, "'unconscious of everything about her, "'lost, buried, I might almost say, in her own thoughts. "'I made no attempt to disturb her. "'My experience of her disposition warned me, "'on this, as on former occasions, to give her time.' The first instinct of girls in general, on being told of anything which interests them, is to ask a multitude of questions and then to run off and talk it all over with some favorite friend. Rachel Verinder's first instinct, under similar circumstances, was to shut herself up in her own mind and to think it over by herself. This absolute self-dependence is a great virtue in a man. In a woman it has a serious drawback of morally separating her from the mass of her sex and so exposing her to misconstruction by the general opinion. I strongly suspect myself of thinking as the rest of the world think in this matter, except in the case of Rachel Verinder. The self-dependence in her character was one of its virtues in my estimation, partly, no doubt, because I sincerely admired and liked her, partly because the view I took of her connection with the loss of the moonstone was based on my own special knowledge of her disposition. Badly as appearances might look, in the matter of the diamond, shocking as it undoubtedly was to know that she was associated in any way with the mystery of an undiscovered theft, I was satisfied nevertheless that she had done nothing unworthy of her, because I was also satisfied that she had not stirred a step in the business, without shutting herself up in her own mind and thinking it over first. We had walked on for nearly a mile, I should say, before Rachel roused herself. She suddenly looked up at me with a faint reflection of her smile of happier times, the most irresistible smile I've ever seen on a woman's face. "'I owe much already to your kindness,' she said, "'and I feel more deeply indebted to it now than ever. "'If you hear any rumors of my marriage when you get back to London, "'contradict them at once, on my authority.' "'Have you resolved to break your engagement?' I asked. "'Can you doubt it?' "'she returned proudly, after what you've told me. "'My dear Miss Rachel, you are very young, "'and you may find more difficulty in withdrawing "'from your present position than you anticipate. "'Have you no one, I mean a lady, of course, "'whom you could consult?' "'No one,' she answered. "'That distressed me. "'It did indeed distress me to hear her say that. "'She was so young and so lonely, and she bore it so well.' The impulse to help her got the better of any sense of my own unfitness which I might have felt under the circumstances, 
and I stated such ideas on the subject as occurred to me on the spur of the moment, to the best of my ability. I have advised a prodigious number of clients, and have dealt with some exceedingly awkward difficulties in my time, but this was the first occasion on which I had ever found myself advising a young lady how to obtain her release from a marriage engagement. The suggestion I offered amounted briefly to this. I recommended her to tell Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite, at a private interview, of course, that he had, to her certain knowledge, betrayed the mercenary nature of the motive on his side. She was then to add that their marriage, after what she had discovered, was a simple impossibility, and she was to put it to him, whether he thought it wisest to secure her silence by falling in with her views, or to force her, by opposing them, to make the motive under which she was acting generally known. If he attempted to defend himself, or to deny the facts, she was, in that event, to refer him to me. Miss Verinder listened attentively till I had done. She then thanked me very prettily for my advice, but informed me at the same time that it was impossible for her to follow it. "'May I ask,' I said, "'what objection you see to following it?' She hesitated, and then met me with a question on her side. "'Suppose you were asked to express your opinion of Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite's conduct,' she began. "'Yes?' "'What would you call it?' "'I should call it the conduct of a meanly deceitful man.' "'Mr. Bruff, I have believed in that man. "'I have promised to marry that man. "'How can I tell him he is mean? "'How can I tell him he has deceived me? "'How can I disgrace him in the eyes of the world after that? "'I have degraded myself by ever thinking of him as my husband, "'if I say what you tell me to say to him. "'I'm owning that I've degraded myself to his face.' I can't do that. After what has passed between us, I can't do that. The shame of it would be nothing to him, but the shame of it would be unendurable to me. Here was another of the marked peculiarities in her character disclosing itself to me without reserve. Here was her sensitive horror of the bare contact with anything mean, blinding her to every consideration of what she owed to herself, hurrying her into a false position which might compromise her in the estimation of all her friends. Up to this time, I had been a little diffident about the propriety of the advice I had given to her, but, after what she had just said, I had no sort of doubt that it was the best advice that could have been offered, and I felt no sort of hesitation in pressing it on her again. She only shook her head and repeated her objection in other words. He has been intimate enough with me to ask me to be his wife. He has stood high enough in my estimation to obtain my consent. I can't tell him to his face that is the most contemptible of living creatures after that. But, my dear Miss Rachel, I remonstrated, it's equally impossible for you to tell him that you withdraw from your engagement without giving him some reason for it. I shall say that I have thought it over, and that I am satisfied it would be best for both of us if we part. No more than that? No more. Have you thought of what he may say on his side? He may say what he pleases. It was impossible not to admire her delicacy and her resolution, and it was equally impossible not to feel that she was putting herself in the wrong. I entreated her to consider her own position. I reminded her that she would be exposing herself to the most odious misconstruction of her motives. You can't brave public opinion, I said, at the command of private feeling. I can, she answered. I've done it already. What do you mean? You've forgotten the moonstone, Mr. Bruff. "'Have I not braved public opinion there 
with my own private reasons for it? Her answer silenced me for the moment. It set me to trying to trace the explanation of her conduct at the time of the loss of the moonstone, out of the strange avowal which had just escaped her. I might perhaps have done it when I was younger. I certainly couldn't do it now. I tried a last remonstrance before we returned to the house. She was just as immovable as ever. My mind was in a strange conflict of feelings about her when I left her that day. She was obstinate. She was wrong. She was interesting. She was admirable. She was deeply to be pitied. I made her promise to write me the moment she had any news to send, and I went back to my business in London with a mind exceedingly ill at ease. On the evening of my return, before it was possible for me to receive my promised letter, I was surprised by a visit from Mr. Abelwhite the Elder, and was informed that Mr. Godfrey had got his dismissal, and had accepted it, that very day. With the view I already took of the case, the bare fact stated in the words that I have underlined, revealed Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite's motive for submission as plainly as if he had acknowledged it himself. He needed a large sum of money, and he needed it by a given time. Rachel's income, which would have helped him to anything else, would not help him here, and Rachel had accordingly released herself without encountering a moment's serious opposition on his part. If I am told that this is a mere speculation, I ask, in my turn, what other theory will account for his giving up a marriage which would have maintained him in splendor for the rest of his life? Any exultation I might otherwise have felt at the lucky turn which things had now taken was effectually checked by what passed at my interview with old Mr. Abelwhite. He came, of course, to know whether I could give him any explanation of Miss Verinder's extraordinary conduct. It is needless to say that I was quite unable to afford him the information he wanted. The annoyance which I thus inflicted, following on the irritation produced by a recent interview with his son, threw Mr. Abelwhite off his guard. Both his looks and his language convinced me that Miss Verinder would find him a merciless man to deal with when he joined the ladies at Brighton the next day. I had a restless night, considering what I ought to do next, how my reflections ended, and how thoroughly well-founded my distrust of Mr. Abelwhite proved to be, are items of information which, as I am told, have already been put tidily in their proper places by that exemplary person, Miss Clack. I have only to add, in completion of her narrative, that Miss Verinder found the quiet and repose which she sadly needed, poor thing, in my house at Hampstead. She honored us by making a long stay. My wife and daughters were charmed with her, and, when the executors decided on the appointment of a new guardian, I feel sincere pride and pleasure in recording that my guest and my family parted like old friends on either side. We'll return with Chapter 2 of the Second Narrative right after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 2. The next thing I have to do is to present such additional information as I possessed on the subject of the Moonstone, or, to speak more correctly, on the subject of the Indian plot to steal the diamond. The little that I have to tell is, as I think I have already said, of some importance, nevertheless, in respect of its bearing very remarkably on events which are still to come. About a week or ten days after Miss Verinder had left us, one of my clerks entered the private room at my office with a card in his hand and informed me that a gentleman was below who wanted to speak to me. I looked at the card. There was a foreign name written on it, which has escaped my memory. It was followed by a line written in English at the bottom of the card, 
which I remember perfectly well. Recommended by Mr. Septimus Lucre. The audacity of a person in Mr. Lucre's position, presuming to recommend anybody to me, took me so completely by surprise that I sat silent for the moment, wondering whether my own eyes had not deceived me. The clerk, observing my bewilderment, favored me with the result of his own observation of the stranger who was waiting downstairs. "'Here's rather a remarkable-looking man, sir, so dark in the complexion that we all set him down in the office for an Indian, or something of that sort.' Associating the clerk's idea with the line inscribed on the card in my hand, I thought it possible that the moonstone might be at the bottom of Mr. Luker's recommendation, and of the stranger's visit at my office. To the astonishment of my clerk, I at once decided on granting an interview to the gentleman below. In justification of the highly unprofessional sacrifice to mere curiosity which I thus made, permit me to remind anybody who may read these lines that no living person, in England at any rate, can claim to have had such an intimate connection with the romance of the Indian diamond as mine has been. I was trusted with the secret of Colonel Herncastle's plan for escaping assassination. I received the Colonel's letters, periodically reporting himself a living man. I drew his will, leaving the moonstone to Miss Verinder. I persuaded his executor to act on the chance that the jewel might prove to be a valuable acquisition to the family. And lastly, I combated Mr. Franklin Blake's scruples and induced him to be the means of transporting the diamond to Lady Verinder's house. If anyone can claim a prescriptive right of interest in the moonstone, and then everything connected with it, I think it is hardly to be denied that I am the man. The moment my mysterious client was shown in, I felt an inner conviction that I was in the presence of one of the three Indians, probably of the chief. He was carefully dressed in European costume, but his swarthy complexion, his long, lithe figure, and his grave and graceful politeness of manner were enough to betray his oriental origin to any intelligent eyes that looked at him. I pointed to a chair and begged to be informed of the nature of his business with me. After first apologizing, in an excellent selection of English words, for the liberty of which he had taken in disturbing me, the Indian produced a small parcel, the outer covering of which was of cloth of gold. Removing this and a second wrapping of some silken fabric, he placed a little box or casket on my table, most beautifully and richly inlaid in jewels, on an ebony ground. "'I have come, sir,' he said, "'to ask you to lend me some money, "'and I leave this as an assurance to you "'that my debt will be paid back.' "'I pointed to his card. "'And you apply to me?' I rejoined, "'at Mr. Lucre's recommendation?' "'The Indian bowed. "'May I ask how it is that Mr. Lucre himself "'did not advance the money that you require?' "'Mr. Lucre informed me, sir, "'that he had no money to lend,' he said. "'And so he recommended you to come to me?' "'The Indian, in his turn, pointed to the card. "'It is written there,' he said. "'Briefly answered, and thoroughly to the purpose. "'If the moonstone had been in my possession, "'this oriental gentleman would have murdered me, "'I am well aware, without a moment's hesitation. "'At the same time, and barring that slight drawback, "'I am bound to testify that he was the perfect model of a client.' He might not have respected my life, but he did what none of my own countrymen had ever done in all my experience of them. He respected my time. I am sorry, I said, that you should have had the trouble of coming to me. 
"'Mr. Luker is quite mistaken in sending you here. "'I am trusted, like other men in my profession, with money to lend. "'But I never lend it to strangers, "'and I never lend it on such a security as you have produced.' Far from attempting, as other people would have done, to induce me to relax my own rules, the Indian only made me another bow, and wrapped up his box in its two coverings without a word of protest. He rose, this admirable assassin rose to go, the moment I'd answered him. "'Will your condescension towards a stranger excuse my asking one question,' he said, before I take my leave. I bowed on my side. "'Only one question at parting,' The average in my experience was fifty. Supposing, sir, it had been possible, and customary, for you to lend me the money, he said, in what space of time would it have been possible, and customary, for me to pay it back? According to the usual course pursued in this country, I answered, you would have been entitled to pay the money back, if you liked, in one year's time from the date at which it was first advanced to you. The Indian made me a last bow, the lowest of all, and suddenly and softly walked out of the room. It was done in a moment, in a noiseless, supple, cat-like way, which a little startled me. I own. As soon as I was composed enough to think, I arrived at one distinct conclusion in reference to the otherwise incomprehensible visitor who had favored me with a call. His face, voice, and manner, while I was in his company, were under such perfect control that they set all scrutiny at defiance. But he had given me one chance of looking under the smooth outer surface of him, for all that. He had not shown the slightest sign of attempting to fix anything that I had said to him in his mind, until I mentioned the time at which it was customary to permit the earliest repayment, on the part of a debtor, of money that had been advanced as a loan. When I gave him that piece of information, he looked me straight in the face while I was speaking, for the first time. The inference I drew from this was that he had a special purpose in asking me his last question, and a special interest in hearing my answer to it. The more carefully I reflected on what had passed between us, the more shrewdly I suspected the production of the casket and the application for the loan, of having been mere formalities designed to pave the way for the parted inquiry addressed to me. I had satisfied myself of the correctness of this conclusion, and was trying to get on a step further, and penetrate the Indian's motives next, when a letter was brought to me, which proved to be from no less a person than Mr. Septimus Luker himself. He asked my pardon in terms of sickening servility, and assured me that he could explain matters to my satisfaction, if I would honor him by consenting to a personal interview. I made another unprofessional sacrifice to mere curiosity— I honored him by making an appointment at my office for the next day. Mr. Luker was, in every respect, such an inferior creature to the Indian. He was so vulgar, so ugly, so cringing, and so prosy, that he's quite unworthy of being reported at any length in these pages. The substance of what he had to tell me may be fairly stated as follows. The day before I had received the visit of the Indian, Mr. Luker had been favored with a call from that accomplished gentleman— in spite of his European disguise, Mr. Luker had instantly identified his visitor with the chief of the three Indians, who had formerly annoyed him by loitering about his house, and who had left him no alternative but to consult a magistrate. From this startling discovery, he had rushed to the conclusion 
naturally enough I own, that he must certainly be in the company of one of the three men who had blindfolded him, gagged him, and robbed him of his banker's receipt. The result was that he became quite paralyzed with terror, and that he firmly believed his last hour had come. On his side, the Indian preserved the character of a perfect stranger. He produced a little casket, and made exactly the same application to which he would afterwards made to me. As the speediest way of getting rid of him, Mr. Luker had once declared that he had no money. The Indian had thereupon asked to be informed of the best and safest person to apply for the loan he wanted. Mr. Luker had answered that the best and safest person, in such cases, was usually a respectable solicitor. Asked to name some individual of that character or profession, Mr. Luker had mentioned me, for the one simple reason that, in the extremity of his terror, mine was the first name that occurred to him. "'The perspiration was pouring off me like rain, sir,' the wretched creature concluded. "'I didn't know what I was talking about. "'And I hope you'll look over it, Mr. Bruff, sir, "'in consideration of my having been really and truly frightened out of my wits.' "'I excused the fellow graciously enough. "'It was the readiest way of releasing myself from the sight of him. "'Before he left me, I detained him to make one inquiry. "'Had the Indian said anything noticeable "'at the moment of quitting Mr. Luker's house?' Yes, the Indian had put precisely the same question to Mr. Luker at parting, which he had put to me, receiving, of course, the same answer as the answer which I had given him. What did it mean? Mr. Luker's explanation gave me no assistance towards solving the problem. My own unaided ingenuity, consulted next, proved quite unequal to grapple with the difficulty. I had a dinner engagement that evening, and I went upstairs in no very genial frame of mind, little suspecting that the way to my dressing-room and the way to discovery meant, on this particular occasion, one and the same thing. And now chapter 3. The prominent personage among the guests at the dinner-party I found to be Mr. Murthwaite. On his appearance in England, after his wanderings, society had been greatly interested in the traveller, as a man who had passed through many dangerous adventures, "'and who had escaped to tell the tale. "'He had now announced his intention "'of returning to the scene of his exploits "'and of penetrating into regions "'left still unexplored. "'This magnificent indifference "'to placing his safety in peril for the second time "'revived the flagging interest "'of the worshippers in the hero. "'The law of chances was clearly "'against his escaping on this occasion. "'It is not every day "'that we can meet an eminent person at dinner.' "'and feel that there is a reasonable prospect "'of the news of his murder "'being the news that we hear of him next. "'When the gentlemen were left by themselves "'in the dining-room, "'I found myself sitting next to Mr. Murthwaite. "'The guest present being all English, "'it is needless to say that, "'as soon as the wholesome check "'exercised by the presence of the ladies was removed, "'the conversation turned on politics "'as a necessary result. "'In respect to this all-absorbing national topic,' I happened to be one of the most un-English Englishmen living. As a general rule, political talk appears to me to be of all talk the most dreary and the most profitless. Glancing at Mr. Murthwaite, when the bottles had made their first round of the table, I found that he was apparently of my way of thinking. He was doing it very dexterously, with all possible consideration for the feelings of his host. But it is not the less certain that he was composing himself for a nap. It struck me as an experiment worth attempting, to try whether a judicious allusion to the subject of the moonstone would keep him awake, and if it did, 
to see what he thought of the last due complication in the Indian conspiracy, as revealed in the prosaic precincts of my office. "'If I'm not mistaken, Mr. Murthwaite,' I began, "'you were acquainted with the late Lady Verinder, "'and you took some interest in the strange succession of events "'which ended in the loss of the Moonstone.' The eminent traveller did me the honour of waking up in an instant, and asking me who I was. I informed him of my professional connection with the Herncastle family, not forgetting the curious position which I had occupied towards the colonel and his diamond in the bygone time. Mr. Murthwaite shifted round in his chair, so as to put the rest of the company behind him, conservatives and liberals alike, and concentrated his whole attention on me, plain Mr. Bruff, of Gray's Inn Square. "'Have you heard anything lately of the Indians?' he asked. "'I have every reason to believe,' I answered, "'that one of them had an interview with me in my office yesterday.' Mr. Murthwaite was not an easy man to astonish, but that last answer of mine completely staggered him. I described what had happened to Mr. Luker, and what had happened to myself, exactly as I have described it here. "'It is clear that the Indians' party in inquiry had an object,' I added." Why should he be so anxious to know the time at which a borrower of money is usually privileged to pay the money back? Is it possible that you don't see his motive, Mr. Bruff? I'm ashamed of my stupidity, Mr. Murthwaite, but I certainly don't see it. The great traveller became quite interested in, in sounding the immense vacuity of my dullness to its lowest depths. Let me ask you one question, he said. "'In what position does the conspiracy to seize the Moonstone now stand?' "'I can't say,' I answered. "'The Indian plot is a mystery to me.' "'The Indian plot, Mr. Bruff, can only be a mystery to you "'because you've never seriously examined it. "'Shall we run it over together, from the time when you drew Colonel Herdcastle's will "'to the time when the Indian called at your office? "'In your position, it may be of very serious importance to the interests of Miss Verinder.' "'that you should be able to take a clear view of this matter in case of need. "'Tell me, bearing that in mind, "'whether you will penetrate the Indian's motive for yourself, "'or whether you wish me to save you the trouble of making any inquiry into it.' "'It is needless to say that I thoroughly appreciated the practical purpose "'which I now saw that he had in view, "'and that the first of the two alternatives was the alternative I chose.' "'Very good,' said Mr. Murthwaite. "'We will take the question of the ages of the three Indians first. "'I can testify that they all look much about the same age, "'and you can decide for yourself whether the man whom you saw was, "'or was not, in the prime of his life. "'Not forty, you think? "'My idea, too. "'We will say not forty. "'Now look back to the time when Colonel Herncastle came to England, "'and when you were concerned in the plan he adopted to preserve his life. "'I don't want you to count the years,' I will only say, it is clear that these present Indians, at their age, must be the successors of three other Indians, high-caste Brahmins, all of them, Mr. Bruff, when they left their native country, who followed the colonel to these shores. Very well. These present men of ours have succeeded to the men who were here before them. If they had only done that, the matter would not have been worth inquiring into. But they have done more. They have succeeded to the organization which their predecessors established in this country. Don't start. The organization is a very trumpery affair, according to our ideas, I have no doubt. 
I should reckon it up as including the command of money, the services, when needed, of that shady sort of Englishman, who lives in the byways of foreign life in London, and lastly, the secret sympathy of such few men of their own country, and formerly at least, of their own religion, as happen to be employed in ministering to some of the multitudinous wants of this great city. Nothing very formidable, as you see, but worth notice at starting, because we may find occasion to refer to this modest little Indian organization as we go on. Having now cleared the ground, I'm going to ask you a question, and I expect your experience to answer it. What was the event which gave the Indians their first chance of seizing the diamond? I understood the allusion to my experience. The first chance they got, I replied, was clearly offered to them by Colonel Herncastle's death. They would be aware of his death, I suppose, as a matter of course? As a matter of course, and his death, as you say, gave them their first chance. Up to that time, the Moonstone was safe in the strong room of the bank. You drew the colonel's will, leaving his jewel to his niece, and the will was proved in the usual way. As a lawyer, you can be at no loss to know what course the Indians would take, under English advice, after that. They would provide themselves with a copy of the will from Doctor's Commons, I said. Exactly. One or other of these shady Englishmen to whom I have alluded would get them the copy you have described. That copy would inform them that the Moonstone was bequeathed to the daughter of Lady Verinder, and that Mr. Blake the Elder, or some person appointed by him, was to place it in her hands. You will agree with me that the necessary information about persons in the position of Lady Verinder and Mr. Blake would be perfectly easy information to obtain. The one difficulty for the Indians would be to decide whether they should make their attempt on the diamond when it was in the course of removal from the keeping of the bank, or whether they should wait until it was taken down to Yorkshire to Lady Verinder's house. The second way would be manifestly the safest way. And there you have the explanation of the appearance of the Indians at Prison Hall, disguised as jugglers, and waiting their time. In London, it is needless to say, they had their organization at their disposal to keep them informed of events. Two men would do it, one to follow anybody who went from Mr. Blake's house to the bank, and one to treat the lower men's servants with beer and hear the news of the house. These commonplace precautions would readily inform them that Mr. Franklin Blake had been to the bank, and that Mr. Franklin Blake was the only person in the house who was going to visit Lady Verinder. What actually followed upon that discovery, you remember, no doubt, quite as correctly as I do. I remembered that Franklin Blake had detected one of the spies in the street, and that he had, in consequence, advanced the time of his arrival in Yorkshire by some hours, and that, thanks to old Betteredge's excellent advice, he had lodged at the diamond in the bank at Prison Hall, before the Indians were so much as prepared to see him in the neighborhood. All perfectly clear so far. But the Indians being ignorant of the precautions thus taken, how was it that they had made no attempt on Lady Verinder's house, in which they must have supposed the diamond to be, through the whole of the interval that elapsed before Rachel's birthday? In putting this difficulty to Mr. Murthwaite, I thought it right to add that I have heard of the little boy, and the drop of ink, and the rest of it, and that any explanation based on that theory of clairvoyance was an explanation which would carry no conviction whatever with it, to my mind. Not to mine either, said Mr. Murthwaite. 
The clairvoyance in this case is simply a development of the romantic side of the Indian character. It would be refreshment and an encouragement to those men, quite inconceivable, I grant you, to the English mind, to surround their wearisome and perilous errand in this country with a certain halo of the marvelous and the supernatural. Their boy is unquestionably a sensitive subject to the mesmeric influence. And, under that influence, he is no doubt reflected what was already in the mind of the person who mesmerized him. I have tested the theology of clairvoyance, and I have never found that manifestations get beyond that point. The Indians don't investigate the matter in this way. The Indians look upon their boy as a seer of things invisible to their eyes, and, I repeat, in that marvel they find the source of a new interest in the purpose that unites them. I only notice this as offering a curious view of human character, which must be quite new to you. We have nothing whatever to do with clairvoyance, or with mesmerism, or with anything else that is hard of belief to a practical man, in the inquiry that we are now pursuing. My object in following the Indian plot, step by step, is to trace results back, by rational means, to natural causes. Have I succeeded to your satisfaction so far? Not a doubt of it, Mr. Murthwaite. I'm waiting, however, with some anxiety, to hear the rational explanation of the difficulty which I've just had the honor of submitting to you. Mr. Murthwaite smiled. It's the easiest difficulty to deal with of all, he said. Permit me to begin by admitting your statement of the case as a perfectly correct one. The Indians were undoubtedly not aware of what Mr. Franklin Blake had done with the diamond, for we find them making their first mistake on the first night of Mr. Blake's arrival at his aunt's house. Their first mistake? I repeated. Certainly. The mistake of allowing themselves to be surprised, lurking about the terrace at night, by Gabriel Betteredge. However, they had the merit of seeing for themselves that they'd taken a false step. For, as you say, again, with plenty of time at their disposal, they never came near the house for weeks afterwards. Why, Mr. Murthwaite, that's what I want to know. Why? Because no Indian, Mr. Brupp, ever runs an unnecessary risk. The clause you drew in Colonel Herncastle's will informed them, didn't it? that the Moonstone was to pass absolutely into Miss Verinder's possession on her birthday. Very well. Tell me which was the safest course for men in their position. To make their attempt on the diamond while it was under the control of Mr. Franklin Blake, who had shown already that he could suspect and outwit them? Or to wait till the diamond was at the disposal of a young girl, who would innocently delight in wearing the magnificent jewel at every possible opportunity? Perhaps you want a proof that my theory is correct— "'Take the conduct of the Indians themselves as the proof. "'They appeared at the house, after waiting all those weeks, "'on Miss Verinder's birthday, "'and they were rewarded for the patient accuracy of their calculations "'by seeing the moonstone in the bosom of her dress. "'When I heard the story of the colonel and the diamond, "'later in the evening, "'I felt so sure about the risk Mr. Franklin had run. "'They would certainly have attacked him "'if he would not happened to ride back to Lady Verinder's "'in the company of other people.' and I was so strongly convinced of the worst risk still, in store for Miss Verinder, that I recommended following the Colonel's plan, and destroying the identity of the gem by having it cut into separate stones. How its extraordinary disappearance that night made my advice useless, and utterly defeated the Hindu plot, 
and how all further action on the part of the Indians was paralyzed the next day by their confinement in prison as rogues and vagabonds, you know as well as I do. The first act in the conspiracy closes there. Before we go on to the second, may I ask whether I have met your difficulty with an explanation which is satisfactory to the mind of a practical man? It was impossible to deny that he had met my difficulty fairly, thanks to his superior knowledge of the Indian character, and thanks to his not having his hundreds of other wills to think of since Colonel Herncastle's time. "'So far, so good,' resumed Mr. Murthwaite. "'The first chance the Indians had of seizing the diamond was a chance lost, on the day when they were committed to the prison at Prison Hall. "'When did the second chance offer itself?' The second chance offered itself, as I am in a condition to prove, while they were still in confinement. He took out his pocketbook and opened it at a particular leaf before he went on. I was staying, he resumed, with some friends at prison hall at the time. A day or two before the Indians were set free, on a Monday, I think, the governor of the prison came to me with a letter. It had been left for the Indians by one Mrs. McCann, of whom they had hired the lodging in which they lived and that it had been delivered at Mrs. McCann's door, in ordinary course of post, on the previous morning. The prison authorities had noticed that the postmark was Lambeth, and that the address on the outside, though expressed in correct English, was in form oddly at variance with the customary method of directing a letter. On opening it, they had found the contents to be written in a foreign language, which they rightly guessed at as Hindustani. Their object in coming to me was, of course, to have the letter translated to them. I took the copy in my pocketbook of the original, and of my translation, and there they are at your service. He handed me the open pocketbook. The address on the letter was the first thing copied. It was all written in one paragraph, without any attempt at punctuation, thus. To the three Indian men living with the lady called McCann at Prison Hall in Yorkshire. The Hindu characters followed, and the English translation appeared at the end, expressed in these mysterious words. In the name of the regent of the night, whose seat is on the antelope, whose arms embrace the four corners of the earth, brothers, turn your faces to the south, and come to me in the street of many noises, which leads down the muddy river. The reason is this. My own eyes have seen it. There the letter ended, without either date or signature. I handed it back to Mr. Murthwaite, and owned that this curious specimen of Hindu correspondence rather puzzled me. "'I can explain the first sentence to you,' he said, "'and the conduct of the Indians themselves will explain the rest. "'The god of the moon is represented, in the Hindu mythology, "'as a four-armed deity, seated on an antelope, "'and one of his titles is the regent of the night. "'The god of the moon, the regent of the night. "'Here, then, to begin with,' is something which looks suspiciously like an indirect reference to the moonstone. Now let us see what the Indians did after the prison authorities had allowed them to receive their letter. On the very day when they were set free, they went at once to the railway station and took their places in the first train that started for London. We all thought it a pity at prison hall that their proceedings were not privately watched. But after Lady Verinder had dismissed the police officer— and had stopped all further inquiry into the loss of the diamond, no one else could presume to stir in the matter. The Indians were free to go to London, and to London they went. What was the next news we heard of them, Mr. Bruff? They were annoying Mr. Luker, I answered, by loitering about the house in Lambeth. 
Did you read the report of Mr. Luker's application to the magistrate? Yes, I did. In the corner of his statement, he referred, if you remember, to a foreign workman in his employment, whom he had just dismissed on suspicion of attempted theft, and whom he also distrusted as possibly acting in collusion with the Indians who had annoyed him. The inference is pretty plain, Mr. Bruff, as to who wrote that letter which puzzled you just now, and as to which of Mr. Luker's oriental treasures the workman had attempted to steal. The inference, as I hasten to acknowledge, was too plain to need to be pointed out. I had never doubted that the moonstone had found its way into Mr. Luker's hands, at the time Mr. Murthwaite alluded to. My only question had been, how had the Indians discovered the circumstance? This question, the most difficult to deal with of all, as I had thought, had now received its answer, like the rest. Lawyer as I was, I began to feel that I might trust Mr. Worthwaite to lead me blindfold to the last windings of the labyrinth, along which he had guided me thus far. I paid him the compliment of telling him this, and found my little concession very graciously received. "'You shall give me a piece of information in your turn before we go on,' he said. "'Somebody must have taken the moonstone from Yorkshire to London, and somebody must have raised money on it, or it would never have been in Mr. Luker's possession. Has there been any discovery made of who that person was?' "'None that I know of,' I answered." "'There was a story, was there not, about Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite. "'I'm told he is an eminent philanthropist, "'which is decidedly against him to begin with.' "'I hardly agreed in this with Mr. Murthwaite. "'At the same time, I felt bound to inform him, "'without, it is needless to say, mentioning Miss Verinder's name, "'that Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite had been cleared of all suspicion "'on evidence which I could answer for is entirely beyond dispute.' "'Very well,' "'said Mr. Murthwaite, quietly. "'Let us leave it to time to clear that matter up. "'In the meanwhile, Mr. Bruff, "'we must get back again to the Indians on your account. "'Their journey to London simply ended "'in their becoming the victims of another defeat. "'The loss of their second chance of seizing the diamond "'is mainly attributable, as I think, "'to the cunning and foresight of Mr. Luker, "'who doesn't stand at the top of the prosperous "'and ancient profession of usury for nothing.' By the prompt dismissal of the man in his employment, he deprived the Indians of the assistance which their confederate would have rendered them in getting into the house. By the prompt transport of the moonstone to his bankers, he took the conspirators by surprise before they were prepared with a new plan for robbing him. How the Indians in this latter case suspected what he had done, and how they contrived to possess themselves of his banker's receipt, are events too recent to need dwelling on. Let it be enough to say... They know the moonstone to be once more out of their reach, deposited, under the general description of a valuable of great price, in a banker's strong room. Now, Mr. Bruff, what is their third chance of seizing the diamond, and when will it come? As the question passed his lips, I penetrated the motive of the Indian's visit to my office at last. I see it! I exclaimed. The Indians take it for granted, as we do, "'that the moonstone has been pledged, "'and they want to be certainly informed "'of the earliest period at which the pledge can be redeemed, "'because that will be the earliest period "'at which the diamond can be removed "'from the safekeeping of the bank. "'I told you you'd find it out for yourself, Mr. Bruff, "'if I only gave you a fair chance. "'In a year from the time when the moonstone was pledged, "'the Indians will be on the watch for their third chance. 
Mr. Luker's own lips have told them how long they will have to wait, and your respectable authority has satisfied them that Mr. Luker has spoken the truth. When do we suppose, at a rough guess, that the diamond found its way into the moneylender's hands? Towards the end of last June, I answered, as well as I can reckon it. And we are in the year 48. Very good. If the unknown person who has pledged the moonstone can redeem it in a year, the jewel will be in the person's possession again at the end of June, 49. I shall be thousands of miles from England and English news at that date. But it may be worth your while to take a note of it, and to arrange to be in London at that time. "'You think something serious will happen?' I said. "'I think I shall be safer,' he answered, "'among the fiercest fanatics of Central Asia "'than I should be if I crossed the door of the bank "'with the moonstone in my pocket. "'The Indians have been defeated twice running, Mr. Bruff. "'It's my firm belief that they will not be defeated a third time.' "'Those were the last words he said on the subject.' The coffee came in, the guests rose, and dispersed themselves about the room, and we joined the ladies of the dinner party upstairs. I made a note of the date, and it may not be amiss if I close my narrative by repeating that note here. June 49. Expect news of the Indians towards the end of the month. That being done, I hand the pen, which I have no further claim to use, to the writer who follows me next. Next week. We begin the third narrative, contributed by Franklin Blake. I hope you're enjoying The Moonstone at 1001 Stories for the Road. This was a classic by Wilkie Collins, and considered one of the very first detective novels. If you're enjoying our story here at 1001 Stories for the Road, and you're an Apple listener, we always appreciate good reviews for 1001 Stories for the Road. If you're a Spotify listener and you enjoyed this episode, Please do give us a comment. We would enjoy hearing from you. Until next Sunday at noon, everyone, please do share our show and stay safe. And we'll be back soon.